It's good to be with you and to worship with you this morning. I appreciate this fellowship more than you'll know. Um, We've been in Charleston 16 years and uh, have in some way or another been connected to Island Community Pres before they moved off of the island and had to rename themselves Redeemer Presbyterian. And um, I really appreciate uh, this fellowship and the partnership, a true partnership in the gospel here in Charleston. Um, And so it's an honor for me to be with you this morning to worship with you. Um, I'm going to be teaching over the next two weeks, as Craig had inquired. I felt prayer was the appropriate response uh, for us to spend a couple of weeks talking about it in particular. It's something that Christians know that they should do more and, off, and do a lot less than they want. Or, um, so I'm just hoping that over the next couple of weeks we'll be a little bit more encouraged in that way. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in Joshua chapter 10. If you have a pew Bible, I believe it's on page 158 in front of you. Joshua chapter 10. I'll be reading from verse 6 through verse 14. Hear what the Spirit of the Lord says. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And they fled before Israel. While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Asher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I simply, just for sake of uh, understanding of where we're going. Um, I'm going to talk about two things of prayer. The first is we're going to talk, I want to talk about the posture of prayer, and then I want to talk about our perspective in prayer. So the posture of prayer, as we begin, I read this account, which is a very famous account, especially when 
talking about prayer, Joshua stands and he calls out to God in the midst of a battle and he asks the Lord to stop heaven and earth. Now, I've prayed this prayer many times, but it's (laughs) maybe on some days when I need more time to finish the works that I have before me. Um, But with four children, it's usually sun stands still in China, moon stays still in Charleston, you know, like extend the evening here, extend the day there so I can get some rest. But when this is usually taught and and we're encouraged, our hearts should be encouraged by the, the concluding word that we read here that the Lord heeded the word of a man. But most preachers, honestly, what really preaches is to preach this, kind of like the David and Goliath sermons. If you just have faith like Joshua, God will move heaven and earth for you. What, what do you need God to do? The universe is not too big for God, right? So whatever your problems are, if you will just pray with the faith of Joshua, God will move heaven and earth for you. If you will just have the faith of David, God will slay whatever giant is before you, right? And so we're to encourage you to pray like Joshua and, and watch God move heaven and earth. That preaches, the only problem with it is it's not biblical. Because the Bible says there wasn't a day before or after that the Lord listened like he did to Joshua. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. So not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Joseph, not Moses, not Noah, not Enoch who walked with God, not David, not Solomon, not Isaiah, not Daniel, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel. So God didn't heed anyone else like He's heeded Joshua, and He doesn't, peers seem to promise that He'll do so. So for me to encourage you to Pray as Joshua prayed, and you'll watch God move heaven and earth would be misleading and at best and disheartening at worst because it sets you up for a greater disappointment. Hopes being deferred and hearts being made sick, the scriptures say. So rather than preach a good sermon (laughs) and and exhort you in that way, I want to try to um, encourage you in prayer in the way I think that the, the text actually um, teaches. And what you need to understand before the passage we just read is kind of the backstory. And the nation of Israel is moving uh, through the land of Canaan, coming into and inheriting the promises of God. And, and um, part of that is a military conquest. And so they're being successful, but they have made some mistakes. And in the chapter 8 of Joshua, you see that they dedicate themselves, they reconsecrate themselves, they celebrate Passover, circumcision, they have a covenant renewal ceremony, and it says that Joshua read to them all of the book, all of the words that Moses wrote. There was not one word that Moses told them that Joshua did not read to them. All of the assembly, all of the women, all of the children, and even the sojourners who were living in their midst. And so they just had this massive Bible study. So they know the Word of God. They know what they're supposed to do as they're walking forward in this time and what they're not supposed to do as they walk forward in this time and what they're not supposed to do is to enter into treaties 
with those that live in Canaan. The Gibeonites in chapter 9 come to them and deceive them. And they make a treaty with them. And the account, which I won't take the time to read, but can simply summarize by telling you that they come in worn-out clothes, it says. It says they came in worn-out sacks, worn-out wineskins, worn-out sandals, worn-out clothes. And they presented themselves. And Joshua and the leaders were suspicious. They just finished reading that whole word of, from Moses. that they, they know we're not supposed to enter into treaties, and these people want to make treaties. Where are you from? And they're like, oh, we're from a long way off. And, and look, at, look at our clothes, and look at our wine sacks, and look at our sandals, and they're, they're all worn out, and our bread is crumbly, and, and they deceive them. And it says that the leaders looked, at, looked upon their provisions... And it says the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I resonate so much with this because I'm a Bible guy. And as Reformation people, as Scripture people, I think our tendency is to lean into the Scriptures as we should. But sometimes I believe we do it to the error of believing in a false trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And we think because we have the Word of God, we need not seek the wisdom of God in prayer. And they had the Word of God. They knew what they should be suspicious of. They knew the questions they needed to be asking. But the only person they didn't ask was God. They asked the men, they asked the travelers, they looked with their eyes, and they walked by sight, and they, not by faith, and they were deceived. So they had the Word of God, but they didn't have the wisdom of God. They didn't consult Him. And sometimes we think that if we just know the Scriptures better, that we need not pray, or why pray. Um, but the book of Acts, which is in many ways, a parallel to the book of Joshua. As the people of God and the kingdom of God is being established and going forth, um, there is not a, a significant event that happens in the book of Acts that doesn't happen on the heel of prayer. Not one. There is not one significant act that happens in the Acts of the Apostles that doesn't come on the heels of prayer. Chapter 1, the choosing of the replacement for Judas, they sought the Lord in prayer for Matthias. Chapter 2, at Pentecost, thousands of people coming to faith in a day. Pretty significant event. The giving of the Holy Spirit, pretty significant event. Happened on the heels of a prayer meeting. Chapter 3, as we read this morning, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And as they devoted, or chapter 2, and as um, chapter 4, as Peter gets arrested and released, they pray for more boldness. And it says that the, the fruit of the Spirit was so evident in the communion, community that there wasn't anyone who had a need among them. They had favor with all the people. Chapter 6, praying for deacons. Chapter 8, the gospel going forth to the Samaritans, fulfilling the Great Commission. Chapters 9 and 10, Peter gets a vision in prayer. Cornelius gets a vision to go send for Peter. And the gospel is brought to us, the Gentiles, on the heels of prayer and confirmed through prayer. Peter's in prison in chapter 10 and gets released. 
during a prayer meeting. An odd thing. He goes to the prayer meeting and it was easier for him to get out of jail than it was for him to get into the prayer meeting. He's knocking on the door. Who is it? It's Peter. Well, it can't be Peter. We're praying that he would be getting out of jail. He's in jail. I know. I'm here. Let me in. Chapter 13. The elders are praying in Antioch. And the Spirit says, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And Paul's missionary journeys and the Jesus franchise begins on the heels of prayer. As they establish churches and appoint elders, they do it in chapter 14, it says, by prayer. Paul and Silas in prison singing hymns and walls falling down through prayer. As Paul leaves the Ephesian elders and entrusts them and warns them, he does it with prayer. And you get the picture, right? I don't know about you, but it seems to me that if we want to see God move in our lives and in our city, that prayer ought to be a pretty important ingredient. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word, yes. They devoted themselves to fellowship and community, yes, amen. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to worship and communion, yes. But they devoted themselves to prayer. But it was a devotion. It was an active commitment. And so, as it was then, as it should be now, we should be devoted. It should be our posture. And when I say posture, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Um, There's a difference between a posture and a gesture. A posture is your default kind of stance or position in life, right? A gesture is a, a move that you make that deviates from the norm. I might make a gesture to help someone or pull over on the side of the road or maybe give and hopefully hopefully tithing is something that's a posture of your life and not a gesture you make right from time to time or helping others but but a gesture is just something that you do that you deviate from your norm but then you return back to your normal way of living and going about your business you return to your posture i think we are sometimes tempted to make prayer a gesture It's a gesture we make rather than the posture we take. And here you see that the mistake that they find themselves in making a treaty with the enemies of God uh, is, is a result of prayerlessness. It's because prayer was a gesture instead of a posture at this point. But how do they go from that to the Lord heeding the prayer of Joshua in a chapter, in a moment, in a few days it says, um, because the nations come out against Gibeon and they've entered into a treaty. It says the people were grumbling with Joshua and Joshua will not take the Lord's name in vain. Which is a sermon in and of itself. They made a rash vow, but they didn't say, well, because it was a rash vow and because um, we have a verse, the verse of not breaking the word of the Lord and not taking His name in vain trumped the verse of don't enter into treaties with these nations. Now you're going to have to live with the consequences. And Joshua decides to live with the consequences the best he can by being as faithful as he can. If he would have uh, prayed, if they would have prayed, they probably would have... um, It could have been revealed to them that the Gibeonites are, as it says in verse 7, they know that they're Hivites. Which all of you are like, oh, Hivites, of course. Oh, man. The Hivites 
for those of you who don't know, are um, go way back in Genesis. They're the ones whom Abraham bought land from in Shechem, and they're the ones who, um, in chapter 33 of Genesis, that Jacob buys land from to settle in. And they're the ones who also defile Dinah. Genesis chapter 34, and Simeon, Simeon and Levi take vengeance upon them. They tell them that they must be circumcised in order to enter into fellowship and family with them and for Dinah to become one of their princesses. And as they have been circumcised and as the men are healing, Simeon and Levi go and kill all the men. And Jacob says, you've made me a stench. And they have to leave. He says, they're going to gather against us in war because of what you've done. And they took the sign of God and the sacrament of God and they turned it into a weapon. I've used the illustration before. It would be like a a gentleman. My daughter got a letter from a boy this week. First letter. She's 15. A letter in the mail from some boy she met in Atlanta. A good thing for him. He lives in Alabama. So he's three states away. But it'd be like if he wanted to enter into some sort of relationship and say, well, do you love the Lord? Are you one of his people? Have you been baptized? And I said, well, you know, before we go any further, can't be unequally yoked. I'm going to have to baptize you. So we baptize them, and then I just hold them under. (laughs) I'll do your christening and your funeral all in one day, brother. You know, just... That's what Levi and Simeon did. They took the sacrament of God and turned it into a weapon. They deceived the Hivites. And now the Hivites have come back and have deceived them. And they're essentially holding them to the covenant they made in Genesis 34. But they are covenant people. They have taken upon them the sacrament of God's people generations before. And they have identified and entered into covenant community. And the people who broke covenant with them was not them, but it was the people of Israel. And so God is at work in the Gibeonites and the Hivites because his plan is to bless all people. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so God is bringing the Gibeonites back. And if they would have prayed, they would have maybe learned something and learned that we've actually betrayed them before, and, but we can also enter into treaty with them because they've taken the covenant upon them before. But they're deceived. And so Joshua moves forward. But the whole situation that they're in, the tension that they're in, is because they didn't have the posture of prayer They didn't consult the Lord. They were alone in their decision. Which is the most dangerous place to be, I might submit to you. James, Jesus' brother, interesting, they they looked at the worn-out sacks, the worn-out sandals, the worn-out wineskins. James, the brother of Jesus, um, had worn-out knees. He was known for his worn-out knees. That was his nickname, Camel Knees. So if you're going to look at something and look for something to be worn out, maybe that should be the first thing that we draw our attention to. So, 
Jesus tells us if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know that he's heard from the Lord. Joshua commits to doing God's will. It says he marches all night. He quickly comes. He doesn't say, well, they're the Gibeonites. They're not the Benjamites. They're not the, you know, they're not the Reubenites. They're not part of Israel. They're kind of, they kind of tricked us and, you know, it's no hurry. They're kind of the in-laws, you know. It's not immediate family. I mean, that could have been the disposition, but he says, no, they marched all night to come to their aid, to honor the word of the Lord, to honor the covenant that they made, to honor the commitment they made, and to be a good witness to these people and to come to their aid. So they come to their aid, and then we see the prayer that he prays. And, and I believe that the reason that God made the sun stand still, and there hasn't been a day like it since or before it since, is that he's literally shining a light on this situation. It's like a spotlight in history. Saying, look at what I'm doing. There's more than just, I'm going to defeat the enemies of Israel. That's, that's happened in Jericho. That happened in Ai. That's going to happen. That happens over and over again. That happened in Egypt. That's happened a lot of times. But he's doing something else. And so the, diff, the second thing I want to talk about is not just the posture of prayer, but the perspective. God's at doing something bigger than we can ever wrap our minds around. We have no idea what he's doing. And we could put all of our energy and all of our effort into thinking about what would be the right thing to do, what would be the right decision to make, how should I move forward. And we can consider all of our conceivable outcomes and all of our conceivable variables. But the reality is there are more, there are infinitely more variables involved. And usually it's bigger than you. That what we need to consider is our prayers and the story that God is writing is bigger than your story and it's bigger than your circumstances. That we need to have a bigger perspective. And, and because the perspective is so big, we need wisdom. And we need to hear from God. I mean, the story of the Gibeonites is being highlighted by God in history with an extra day of sunlight. God highlights this reality that He takes the mistakes of men and turns them into the blessings of God. He takes the mistakes. I'm going to redeem Gideon. I'm going to take the mistakes of Levi and Simeon generations before, hundreds of years before, and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring Gideon back. My desire is to bring all nations, for all nations of the earth to be blessed by you. And I'm going to bring them all in. And I'm, So I'm going to use this. Though you, What you meant for ill will... God intended for good. And so he's bringing the Gibeonites back in. And then, how convenient. Joshua doesn't go ha- have to go fight five separate battles and five separate kings. He just brings them all to one place and defeats them all at once. And oh, by the way, the Lord killed more than the Israelites did. So let's just be clear who's, who's fighting for who. Right? So the Lord is... Joshua is being faithful doing his part, doing the best he can with what he can. They marched all night. They prayed. They consulted the Lord. They're trying to be faithful. And yet, at the end of the day, it's the Lord who's doing all the heavy lifting. Amen? Amen? That's the perspective we need to have. That it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Lord. But he's showing something that's even bigger, a bigger story, the bigger perspective. The interesting thing about the Gibeonites that that they save here is this isn't the last time we hear about the Gibeonites. See, the Gibeonites are from the land of Benjamin, allotted to Benjamin. And if you know anything about that little tribe, 
That's where Saul, the first king of Israel, comes from. And Saul didn't like the Gibeonites. He was prejudiced. He was a racist. And it says that he sought to kill them, that he did kill them. 2 Samuel 21, the Lord tells David, there is blood guilt on Saul because he put the Gibeonites to death. And so the Gibeonites are in their midst and the first king of Israel breaks covenant with them and still treats them like Canaanites instead of as family. And God said there's blood guilt on them. And David goes to the Gibeonites and he sets them apart and they take seven sons of Saul and they hang them as a retribution for the Gibeonites to demonstrate their faithfulness. But then it doesn't end there. As David sets them apart, as Joshua set them apart, what is their job that Joshua gives them? He gives them the job of carrying wood and serving the Levites in the worship of God in the temple. They get a front row seat to the glory of God. And their killers became their masters. The, The Levites became their bosses. And they got a front row seat And I believe God used that to redeem that people for ages to come. And it says, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are listed as the men in the account of those who come back to help rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. That the Gibeonites are still numbered among the men of Israel, still distinguished. And it's a beautiful picture of God's redemption. See, if you just focus on the perspective of, is this a trick? Like just my little circumstance, just right now, this one decision, this, it, this is all that there really is. You don't have the perspective. God's perspective is so much bigger and His plan is so much greater than we can comprehend that it, really to move forward requires His wisdom. To see what He's doing requires eyes of faith. And He doesn't just say, you need to pray or you're going to make mistakes. He says, you need to pray so you can see my glory. You want to see my glory? You have to pray. Because it's only through eyes of faith that you can see the miracles of God. Well, after this battle, they bring these kings out of a cave that they had hid them in. In chapter 10.26, it says that Joshua put his foot on their necks and told them, the Lord will fight for you. This is what He's going to do to your enemies. And it says that He struck them. He put them to death. They hung them on a tree till evening. Then they took them down, put them in a cave, and set large stones against its mouth. And it says they, those stones remain there to this day. So the last perspective I want to give you is Not just that you should have a posture of prayer, that you should pray, or that you need to pray, or that you need a greater perspective to pray, but that you shouldn't pray that God would move heaven and earth for you, because God has already moved heaven and earth for you. See, these kings in Gibeah were struck and put to death, hung on a tree, 
taken down in the evening, put in a cave with a large stone rolled in front of him. The king of Golgotha, our savior, they struck him, they put him to death, they hung him on a tree till evening. They took him down, they put him in a cave, and they rolled a stone in front of it. And rather than the sun standing still and giving its light, it says that when Jesus was treated like the kings of the Canaanites, when our Christ was treated like a sinner. The sun failed to give its light. But God took him who knew no sin to be sin. That he took the king of glory and treated him like a king of Gibeon so that we, enemies of God, could be brought into the family of God. And God moved heaven and earth for you. He turned out the light. He shook the earth. He tore the temple curtain in two. And Jesus was treated as a sinner so that you could be welcomed as a saint. So you shouldn't just pray that God would move heaven and earth for you. You should pray because God has already moved heaven and earth for you. And Paul tells us in Romans He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So our posture should be one of prayer. Our perspective in prayer needs to be bigger than our circumstances. But our motive for prayer should not be for God to do something great because God has already done the greatest thing that he can do. And because he's already done the greatest thing that he can do, you can come in confidence in prayer and ask him to do the little things. Amen? So with that, let's pray. Lord, your word teaches us that these things were written for our instruction, that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Father, I pray that you would grant hope to our hearts today that we would remember how you have answered the greatest prayer that we could ever cry before we were even able to ask it. That while we were enemies, you demonstrated your love by dying for us. Father, may that hope, may that good news fuel our prayer to ask for all the other things that you have promised so graciously to give. Holy Spirit, fill us with faith. Lift our eyes to Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.